continue our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just put your hand in the air and keep it in the air and the ushers will bring a Bible to you. For those of you who are just kind of jumping into our study of Ephesians, I'll just give you a, a brief synopsis to catch you up where we're at. The writer of this epistle is obviously the Apostle Paul and he he wrote this in a unique style. There's six chapters. The, the first three chapters, Paul identifies the wealth that is uh, associated with our lives in Christ and, and just tells us all the, the multitude of blessing that God has poured into us so, so we can know our position in Christ and the wealth that that has. And then the second half of the letter is our response to what God has done on our behalf. And so we learn about our walk and what, what the Lord expects to happen in us as we understand our position in Christ. And, and then as we begin to walk in Christ, he ends this letter in chapter 6 by telling us of the warfare that we're going to encounter and how we can deal with that opposition. And so Paul lays this out in a masterful plan to uh, really encourage our life as Christians. And and so uh, in chapter 1, we learned uh, that we who are Christians are blessed with every spiritual blessing, uh, that that is our position in Christ. And, and this morning, we're going to read now of the, the wonderful grace that God has given to us, His unmerited favor toward all who believe in his son Jesus. And, and we're going to see that by his grace, we are made alive in Christ. And that's the title of the message, Alive in Christ. And, uh, you know, it's, I was thinking about it this week as I was approaching this text. And, and I remember 15 years ago, in July of 2001, Daniil and I were, were headed across the country to go to a police chaplain conference, and we decided since we were going to be near the East Coast, that we would kind of extend the conference and take a vacation and go uh, travel and see some of the, the sites of history in our country. And we, you know, we went to Washington, D.C., we went to Philadelphia, and, and we were taken in all these sites, and we, we landed in New York. And, and that was the first time I'd ever been to New York, and uh, I didn't like the people, didn't like the city, <laughs> didn't like the traffic. I, you know, I just looked at the city and thought, these people are insane. And and so, but I remember there was something that stood out about that trip. This was um, prior to the attack on our World Trade Center. This was July of 2001. And I, I remember going to the top of the Empire State Building, and uh, it, it was a, a clear day, and, you know, it's 102 stories high, and and I remember going to the, the platform and looking out, and, and you could see forever 
the view was just amazing. I remember noticing the skyline and seeing the World Trade Center towers that that made the skyline of New York. And I thought, man, this is just beautiful to look at and and amazing. But but you know, I remember the contrast that I experienced that day. You see, we we went to the Empire State Building in the subway of New York, and and so. Uh, when you're in the subway, it's underground, it's dark, it's it's kind of dreary, the the people are subdued, and, and there's graffiti on the walls, and shady-looking characters all around, and, and and so, you know, you're 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 going there, and you're just kind of looking around, making sure nobody's going to mug you, and, and, and so you just kind of sense the darkness, and then, you know, we, we end up above ground, and not only above ground, we are towering now at the 102nd floor looking out at the the skyline of the city. And and so, you know, you could you you can sense the refreshing uh experience of being above everything and just looking out at this this beautiful skyline. What a contrast. One uh one place seemed to be the top of the world and the other place was the depths of the earth. And, and so in this first chapter, or this second chapter of, of Ephesians, Paul takes us first down to the depths of our humanity in verses one through three. And then verses four through seven, he takes us into the, the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And he, he brings us into that contrast. And, and that is his method from, from death to life, from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom, from pessimism to optimism, all in Christ. And, and so the, the passage's contrast is going to improve our appreciation for what we have in Christ and how that should impact us today as followers of Jesus. So let's get into our text and and see how Paul lays this out for us. In verse 1, chapter 2, he says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, it's interesting to me that in chapter 1, Paul wrote about this awesome power of God that's at work in our lives as a believer. And and now, at in chapter 2, he tells us that this power that's at work in us has made us alive in Christ. Now, we have to be true to the text, and so I need to, to draw your attention to something. If you notice in verse 1, it's in italics where he said, he made us alive. When it's in italics like that, it means that it wasn't in the original manuscript or the oldest manuscript that we have. And and so the 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 translators inserted that just so you could catch the flow. Now, uh, I, I tell you that to be honest with you, but... It doesn't change anything about what Paul is communicating because in verse 5 he tells us we're alive in Christ. And, and so they, they just inserted that so you can keep the flow of what he's saying. And, and so 
Um, we are made alive in him because without him we're dead. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate. He's, he's taking us to the darkness of our humanity apart from Christ. And, and so first he, he gives a description of our life apart from Jesus uh, without having a relationship with the Lord. In order to fully comprehend what it means to be alive in Christ, we have to understand how dark it is apart from him. And, and so um, we, we have to know and comprehend that apart from Jesus, every human being is dead spiritually. And, and it's kind of like when a, a jeweler is going to present a diamond to you and show you a diamond. He will put that shiny diamond on a black velvet background. And he does that to accentuate the beauty of the diamond. He, he shows you that in, in contrast with the, the black velvet so you can appreciate how bright this diamond is. Well, you and I, our lives apart from Christ are like that black velvet. It, it's darkness. It's, it's, it, it shows nothing of value. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, there's a difference between sin and trespasses. If you have one of the newer translations, the New International Version, I think says uh, trans, transgression instead of trespasses. Well, sin comes from an old English word used in archery. Uh, the word in the original language in the Greek is harmatia, and it literally means to miss the mark. And so um, in, in the olden days when they, they would have these archery contests, they would, they would line up and they would address their target and they would take their bow and their arrow and they would shoot at the bullseye. And as they were targeting that bullseye, if they pulled their shot and it missed, the judge would yell sin. And, and that simply means that they missed the mark. They were aiming for the bullseye, but their their shot pulled to the left or to the right, and, and they threw it off the bullseye, and so it was referred to as sin. Now, transgression is a willful disobedience. It's when you have no regard for God. It doesn't mean you're, you're trying to hit the mark. It means you don't care about the mark, and you're just going to live however you want to live, in willful disobedience to the Lord and choosing to go against Him and His Word in whatever matter is before you. It, it causes you to be in a trespass or a transgression. Now, this is the deal. Whether you sin or you transgress, the net result is the same. You're still separated from God. There, there's still death associated with either case. And, and so it, it means you're spiritually dead. So um, whether it's a sin or a transgression, whether it's unintentional or intentional, it will separate us from God, therefore causing death. In fact, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. And, and that's a, it's a spiritual death that he's referring to, that, that there's a separation because of our sin f 
from God. In fact, Romans 6.23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. So that's, that's what we deserve because of our sin. We, we deserve to die, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And so whether it's just sin, a missing of the mark, or a deliberate, willful act of disobedience, again, the net effect is the same. Sin trespasses. They both alienate you and I from God. You see, I, I was dead in my sin. You were dead in your sin and trespasses. Our lives were that black velvet, so to speak. Spiritual darkness. Now, the, the truth be known, according to the, the old revival preacher, Paris Reedhead, we're all monsters of iniquity. If you ever get a chance to, to listen to the, the revival hymns, boy, some of these preachers, they bring it down. In fact, this guy, uh, Paris Reedhead, when he's preaching, he's preaching to a, a, a crowd in a church and he's telling them, we are monsters of iniquity. And it's true. We are apart from Christ. The Bible tells us this about a man who is striving to do his best in life apart from Christ. Paul said this in Romans 7.18. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And then Paul goes into that, that great kind of dialogue with himself where he, he seems to be you know, going back and forth in his own mind, and and uh, he he regards the things that that I want to do, um, or, or the things I don't want to do, I do do. Can you say do do in church? I don't know, but 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 that was kind of where he was headed with. He's like, I I don't want to do this, but I end up doing this, and 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 he's back and forth with this dialogue with himself. And he's saying, in my flesh, or by my natural choices, I cannot accomplish anything that would equate to righteousness. My flesh is weak. It's unreliable. It, it, it falters frequently in my quest for righteousness or, or good living. And, and this is the truth. Before I came to know Jesus, I was dead because of the sin in my life. Before you came to Christ, you were dead because of the sin in your life. We were dead in our sin. We might have been walking, breathing, and, and have this thing we call life, but, but spiritually, we were dead. Spiritually, we were dead because of the sin. Isaiah said it like this in Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now, you're going to have to allow me to get a little descriptive for a Sunday morning. That, that word in the Hebrew language, uh, in, in the original language it was written for unrighteousnesses or filthy rags, I mean, was a used menstrual cloth. And, and so what Isaiah is saying is that 
the most righteous thing that I can do in and of my own efforts, the, whatever it is you picture in your mind as a good deed, you know, doing something good, the best thing that you can think of in compared to the righteousness that is necessary to stand before a perfect God on your own merit, he says that righteousness is like a filthy rag, a used menstrual cloth. And, and so it doesn't matter how well we perform, you see, the standard to be able to stand before a righteous God is perfection. And at some point in our life, we're going to, even if we're trying to hit the bullseye, we're going to sin. We're going to miss the mark. One sin is enough to end that perfection that is necessary to stand before God. And so all of us, standing in our own righteousness, is like standing in a filthy rag. We cannot become righteous in our own effort. We will all sin. We will all fail at some point. And it only takes one sin. You may get it right your entire life. I doubt you will. But, but even if you did, and you had a really good record going, and you're still aiming at the target, and you pull that shot a little to the right, a little to the left, you're a sinner. You missed it. You cannot stand before a perfect God. And so what Paul is writing to us is that in and of ourselves, we can never become perfect like it's necessary to be accepted into heaven. He even explains how this happens to us. He says that we are dead because we have followed the course of this world. What is the course of this world? Well, it means going against God in every way possible and and, and just really coming to uh, our opinions about life based on the philosophy of man or or the gist of our society and, and what it says is right. Well, this is the deal. Our society is in the habit of calling good bad and bad good. And so we cannot let that form our opinion of what is righteous and what is not. I mean, you, you, you think about what's happening just, just in recent Times here in these last uh, weeks, we had five police officers shot in Dallas. This morning, if you didn't read, we have three police officers in Baton Rouge that were killed, three in critical condition. The same madness is, is just perpetuated because of the insanity of what people are saying in our society. They're saying Black Lives Matter. The movement is insane. The movement is saying that pigs are in a blanket, they should be fried like bacon, and they're putting this mantra out into society that is brainwashing people to come against what keeps society in check. And, and the reality is it's a lie. All lives matter. God is concerned with every life. He's concerned with black people, white people, brown people. He, he's concerned with all of us. He's concerned with police officers and civilians alike. And so we can't let the mantra of society form our opinion about what is right and wrong. It's madness. And it is ruining our society. But it is being called right or righteous by some. It's craziness. The madness has to stop. In fact, I want to just stop right now and pray 
for our police officers because right now there's this obvious target on our back. And so let's pray together as a church. Lord, we come to you, Lord, because you are righteous and you are right. And Lord, you have power to save and protect. And so we, we want to pray for the law enforcement of our country right now who seem to be under attack, Lord. And I, I pray that there would be a hedge of protection around them, Lord, that you would bring this madness to an end. And Lord, that, that there would be a peace that, that falls upon this society that comes from you, Lord. May, may we be a people that, that bring people the knowledge of Christ who saves and changes lives. Lord, may we come to our senses as a country, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so man is continually trying to gratify himself. And in the pursuit of self-gratification, he has sought to justify his sin and unrighteousness. Now, we have all suffered from that self-gratification at some point in life, at one time or another. Folks, we live in a me-centered society that, that is driven to put self at the center of the world and and what it is the world and, and everybody in it can bring to me. That's, that's what our society projects. It's very me-driven. In fact, I call it me-ism. I think that's the, the prevailing thought of our society today. And, and it's so easy to get self-consumed when everything you hear revolves around self and pleasure to self and what you can get and what you're owed in this society. It's very easy for us to, to try and let that develop our thoughts and, and our mind. And it's affected church and, and the life in the church, this whole me philosophy. We need to fight against this mindset, folks. We, we need to keep each other accountable in this. That, that what's in it for me mentality has to stop at the doors of the church. We can't, we can't let it come into our midst and, and, you know, try to disrupt what the Lord wants to do in the life of the church. You see, many people I've talked to over the years who have, who have left church say it's because they weren't getting anything out of it. Common statement. And, and I want you to hear me say this, but I want you to hear this in the tone and the heart that I'm saying it. I don't want you to, to be offended by what I'm about to say. But this is the reality. If, if you're coming to Calvary Chapel, Apple Valley, hoping that somebody's going to meet your needs, then at some point we're going to offend you and you're going to get upset with us. At some point, you're going to find yourself disappointed in what we deliver. It's not because we don't care about you. It's just the reality. If, if our eyes are on ourself, at some point, our self isn't going to get enough. And that's the opposite of the way we're supposed to approach the life of the church. We're supposed to approach our family and our gatherings with, Lord, how can you use my life to benefit the people that I'm going to be hanging out with today? 
And, and so as we arrive at church or even throughout the week as we approach times together in fellowship, our prayer needs to be, Lord, I don't want to be self-centered. I want to be other-centered. I, I want my life to impact other people and for them to be encouraged. And, and, and I'll tell you this straight out. Our Christian life is supposed to be lived with that intent because when we have that uh, as our attitude that we want to serve and bless others, we're going to be more encouraged in our own walk than ever before because that's the design. That, that is the way the Lord designed the church to function is that we would come together with all of our gifts and, and everything that he has poured into us by his Holy Spirit and that we would mutually encourage one another. Now, Now, realize this. When that's happening, you're going to be blessed. <laughs> you are going to be encouraged. You are going to be lifted in your spirit, but not because you come seeking that. It's a byproduct of pouring out yourself into others. When Paul was talking to the the leaders in Ephesus in Acts 20, he said it's, and he quoted Jesus, he said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. There's a there's a spiritual truth in there that we need to latch on to to know that it is more of a blessing to our life when we're pouring it out for others. So pray before you come to church. Ask the Lord to let you be a blessing. You see, meism, this mindset that is described by Paul, he says is the course of this world. That's the way the world operates. It's not supposed to be the way we operate. Paul describes this life as being led by the opposing spirit, the spirit that causes disobedience. In other words, if, if we continue to live by the world's principles, we are sold out to the enemy, Satan. We're following the desires that he would want us to follow. Now maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, preacher. Even when I was dead in my sins... I didn't worship Satan. And you picture having to wear black and be gothed out and, you know, going to satanic services. That's not necessary to worship Satan. The Bible tells us that we can only serve one master. In fact, in the the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. (laughs) Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. So we're either serving the Lord with our life or we're serving the other guy. I find it interesting that people are afraid of the will of God for their life. And they don't want to pray, Lord, you know, use me how you want to. They think maybe the Lord's going to send them to Africa and they're going to have to be going after headhunters and eating bugs. And it's like, I don't want to pray for God's will. He may do something weird. And so there's a hesitancy to fully follow after God and desire His will for your life. The problem is this. If we aren't sold out to the Lord, willing to live for Him and have His will for our lives, we, are, we will be letting Satan, who hates us, order the steps that we walk. We have to purpose in our heart to walk with the Lord. We have, to, we have to purposefully set it in our heart and in our mind that we are going to serve the Lord and allow His will 
to direct our steps. When he says walked according to this world in verse 2, the, the word walked in the original language in the Greek is peripateo, and it means in the English language without purpose, or, or more descriptive would be to meander about. Now when I consider that word meander, I think of when Daniil and I were at the Mall of Victorville. We both walk, but we do it differently. You see, I, I can go to, from J.C. Penney to Macy's in 2.5 minutes and accomplish everything I need to do while I'm at the mall. <laughs> now, Danielle, we'll just say she can make a day of it. And, and so I walk with a gait. I have a purposeful walk. I know why I'm there. I know what I'm after. I get it, and I get out. She meanders. Takes it all in. The purpose can change several times during a visit, depending on what's available. Now, that's not a bad thing at the mall, unless we're together. <sighs> but, but in our spiritual life, we need to walk with the purpose of serving God. If we meander, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be led astray. What does it mean when our, our life is dead in sin, we're following after Satan and his plan to keep us away from God? Well, maybe maybe you're still in that place. Maybe, maybe you came to visit us today and, and you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. You've never asked Him to come into your life and to be your Savior. And... And so you came here maybe hoping to find an answer to the confusion in life. The confusion that this spiritually dead existence brings to you. I'll just tell you this. You can end the confusion this morning. You can receive salvation from the Lord. You can be made alive in your spirit as Paul has described to us. In fact, I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of this message. You can pray and you can ask Jesus to be your Savior. And you can be made alive in Christ. You can know the forgiveness of the living God and establish a personal relationship with Him that will change your life. He wants to make you alive spiritually. So you can be chewing on that decision as we proceed through the text. There's hope for those who are still bound in sin following after the course of this world. Now, in this next section, Paul tells us that we are forgiven. We who are forgiven have been made alive in Christ. Let's look at it in verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love those two words, but God. It's a powerful statement dealing with all of our insufficiencies in this life. We are dead in sin, but God. We are financially ruined, but God. We are addicted to alcohol, but God. We are addicted to drugs, but God. We are addicted to pornography, but God. 
We are sexually confused, but God. We are suffering from outbursts of anger, but God. In a bad relationship, but God. You see, those are powerful words. Paul, Paul says here, but God who is rich in mercy. This God extends his grace to us who are dead. and He makes us alive. But God, those who are dead in sin, but God who is rich in mercy, he pours grace into us so that we can live. Those who are suffering addiction right now, but God who is rich in mercy, brings life where death has reigned. Those who are confused or angry, but God who is rich in mercy, He brings life. Powerful words. He brings life into all of these areas where death has reigned in us. Not because we deserve it, but because of His mercy. Not because we have made our life acceptable to Him, but because of His mercy and His grace. Think about these for a moment. What is mercy? Mercy is being spared or, or not receiving what we deserve. Remember, we read that the result of our sin, the wages of our sin, is death. That's what we deserve. Every one of us has sinned, and therefore what we deserve is death. But because of God's mercy, He makes us alive. He does it through grace. What is grace? It's receiving what you don't deserve. Receiving life. He makes us alive even though we don't deserve it. Let me illustrate this this idea of mercy and grace for you. Let's say you're driving down Highway 18 and and your foot's getting a little heavy and you, you kick it up to about 70 miles an hour and I'm following you in my patrol car and I turn the lights on, and you pull over, and I walk up to the vehicle. The first thing you're going to say is, oh, no, why is it you? And that's happened. <laughs> and I'm going to say, no, why is it you? <laughs> Let's turn that around. And I'm going to say, well, you know, it seems that you were going a little above the speed limit. You're, you're clipping along about 10 miles too fast. So I need your license, registration, proof of insurance, and happily you're going to give that to me. And I'm going to go back to my vehicle and I'm going to write you a ticket for 10 miles over the speed limit. I'm going to come back to your door and I'm going to, right before I hand it to you, I'm going to write warning across the front of the ticket. That's mercy. I'm I'm going to extend mercy to you because I have the ability to do that. I'm going to give mercy. Now, if I give you the ticket without warning on it, I know there's going to be a fine associated with going 10 miles over the speed limit. If I were to give you the ticket and write my personal check out to you for the cost of the fine, that's grace. I'm I'm giving you something you don't deserve. I'm paying the fine for you. And, And so... God has extended mercy to us and grace. He has, he has not only taken away or, or not given us what we deserved, He's giving us something that we don't deserve. He's giving us life. 
Folks, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. It, it just seems that, that you know, in our, in our humanness, that, that we think there has to be more to this. I, I have to participate in my salvation some way. I have to do something good in order to earn God's favor toward me. We are so task-oriented that we can't imagine that God would just extend mercy and grace into our life. And I think we, we begin training our kids about this at a young age. I remember when my kids were growing up, they got an A on their report card, they got a dollar. I think it's up to like 50 bucks now. It's inflation, it's craziness, I don't know. But, but we were teaching them, if you do good, there's a reward. And, and so, you know, we kind of grow up with that mindset that, that if, if you do well, then there's a reward associated with it. And, and as we become adults, we kind of bring that into our mindset with God. And we think, well, in order to have the favor of God, then we have to do something in ourselves to warrant God's favor into our life. And the problem is in our own strength, in our own ability, we fall miserably short of what is needed to have a relationship with God. We cannot stand before a perfect God in our own perfection. We lack. There there isn't enough in us to stand in His presence. And so we need His mercy. We need His grace in order to have that place where we can stand in His presence. And so we have to acknowledge our lack of what it takes, pray for His mercy, To fill our life, He pours His matchless grace and mercy into us, realizing that Jesus paid the fine. He paid the price for our sin. We who were dead are made alive. And it radically changes us. So what does it mean to be made alive? Well, He shared in our death that we could share in the resurrected life. The old man is crucified. We are now a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things become new. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's based on His goodness and the richness of His grace and His mercy toward us. Another interesting point is that He loved us while we were unlovable. He didn't, he didn't look at us and say, you know what, he's doing much better now, I think I can love him. No, he loved us when we were monsters of iniquity. We're the worst of the worst. The worst thing you can conceive in your mind of a man doing to another person. God is rich in mercy and grace toward that person. He loves that person with a love we can't even describe fully. We think it should be natural for God to love us when we change, but He loves us in that miserable state of sin. The truth is, His love, His grace, is what gives us the ability to change our behavior. We cannot change apart from His power. And Paul is compelled to add here, that this is a work of God's grace. It's in no way involving merit on our part at all. Wow, what an awesome 
God we serve. And we'll end by touching these next two verses. Verse 6, And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Once we receive this grace, it said we're made alive in Christ, and, and God raises us up to the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. From the, the depths and darkness of despair, he puts us up into the heavenlies. What a contrast, right? And he raises us up. That, that is the same term that he used back in the, the first chapter about that resurrection power. That power raises us up. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that raises us up into this position in the heavenlies. A position that Paul says that, that gives us exceeding riches in his grace. Though not yet there physically, we Christians are already in heavenly places as a benefit of our relationship with Jesus. The, the powers of the, the spiritual realm are at work in us, positioning us in Christ, in that place above uh, the, the distractions of this life, a place where we can live for Him and serve Him. And it's all the riches of His grace. So what does this mean? Well, we're physically walking on this earth. So, so what does it mean to be raised up together with Him in the heavenlies? Well, it means positionally we are seated in Christ. Not, not with Him, but in Him. This means that all the benefits we've been learning about throughout chapter 1 up to this point are sealed into our lives and we're positioned in Christ. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So in Christ, we, we know that we have been given every spiritual blessing, everything that we need to live for him in this life. In fact, in verses 20 to 23, he says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so in Christ, we have been given authority, position over the enemy that comes against our life. We are in Christ. We, we now are positioned above that enemy that would want to destroy our life. And no longer does he dictate what we do and don't do. We're in Christ. We're positioned in him. Are you in Christ this morning? If so, you're positioned in Him, in the heavenlies, able to experience the, 
the blessing of his presence. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of my life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. To know him is to be alive, to experience the fullness of joy in his presence. Pleasure from being with him and knowing him. You're in Christ this morning. Rejoice that he's made you alive. Rejoice that, that you are alive in Christ, positioned in him in the heavenlies. Allow his presence in your life to bring fullness of joy. Christian, hear his word to you this morning. You're alive. You can now view life from the platform of the 102nd floor, looking out at all the beauty and the majesty of being in God and in Christ. From the depths of darkness to life, you're alive. God, who is rich in mercy, says you who were once dead are alive in Christ, filled with His grace. He chose you to be His child. What an awesome God. Maybe you came here this morning and have never invited Jesus into your life, and hopefully you've been thinking about this, and you know that now is, is the time to do that. Jesus died to pay the price for your sin. Every time you have missed the mark, every time you have willfully gone against God, Jesus died so that you can be forgiven of those sins, trespasses, every failure, every mistake that you've ever made can be forgiven. But you have to invite Him into your life. You have, to, you have to believe that Jesus died for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and ask Him to be your Savior, to come into your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so, so blessed by the study of Your Word. What a, what a, a joy to know that we're alive this morning that we don't have to perform, but it's your mercy, your grace that has brought life to us. Lord, may we respond with a willingness and desire to yield our life to you completely without fear or reservation to come to the life of the church with a, the expectation of what we can pour into others that you would be glorified and lifted up in our midst, Lord. Lord, help us to be a church that, that radiates life, that's attractive to those who are still trapped in sin, that they would come and desire that same life. And Lord, if there's any among us today who desire that, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move upon their heart. I just want to give you that opportunity right now to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Savior. If that's you and you want to know today, your sin is forgiven. You want to be alive in Christ. Just put your hand up in the air so I can see it. I want to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus. Anybody at all? Lord, thank you for the hope that we have, the life that we have in Jesus. May, may we radiate that life from our, our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name.